Hey, well, welcome back. We, 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 wow. Uh, <laughs> excited to be here for another fun episode. Another awesome guest who is very into the community. And uh, this one is practicing relationship anarchy. So we get to learn a little bit of what, about what that means. Get ready. Practicing polyamory. Real life perspectives from the imperfect people of polyamory. The mission of the Practicing Polyamory podcast is to provide a platform for all of the real-life, flawed humans that practice polyamory so that we might all learn from one another and grow as a community. Enjoy the show. Definitely loving that music a lot more. And once again, a huge shout out and thank you to my good buddy, Alex Gomez, Alexito De La Voz on Instagram if you need voiceover services. Other than that... Everybody, welcome to the show. Uh, before we jump in, I just want to once again ask for you, if you are listening, watching, wherever it is, uh, go to YouTube and hit that subscribe button. I want to get that 100 subscribers uh, before the end of the month. I think I'm at like 22 or 23 now, so uh, I got a few yesterday. Appreciate every single one of you. You guys are awesome. If I get to 100 by the end of the month, I'm going to be really excited. Also, you can follow us on the show uh, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Twitch, at practicing poly a so if you want to follow us there i would love that from you as well um once again i want to reiterate that this is an open invitation and there are specific stories that i really want to hear i am just your boring you know straight cis het guy right i want to hear the stories from our Bi bipoc lgbtq community uh that also identify as polyamorous so if that is you I really, really want to hear your story. Yours are the ones that uh, that need to be heard. So uh, that's who I am. Absolutely, really looking forward to hearing from those. Are, those are the stories that I think are going to make the biggest impact. So, uh, if that is you, BIPOC, LGBTQ, and polyamorous, please, please reach out. I would love to hear from you. All right, ladies and gentle thems, let's get on with the show. Our guest today believes that if people are willing to tease apart their ideas about relationships, sex, and intimacy, that they will find that much of what culture and society has whispered in our ears about honesty, power, and self-worth all begins to fall away. She's been practicing consensual non-monogamy for the past couple of years with a high emphasis on relationship anarchy. She loves to be involved in her community. In addition to volunteering and mentoring young leaders at a local camp, she's working with other non-monogamous folks to establish a co-housing community. This sounds fun. She's passionate about creating bridges for kind discourse through non-violent communication, which results in authentic, radically authentic, radically honest relationships. <laughs> I'm excited to learn from this unique and genuine guest. So please welcome to the show, Heather Tut Robinson. <laughs> Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> we like to have fun, Heather. We like to have fun. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for jumping on. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be here. I'm really glad to be able to learn from you. Uh, so tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, have not been practicing polyamory or consensual non-monogamy for too terribly long, a couple of years. Uh, tell me about your journey. Where, where did you first hear about it and what kind of open that idea for you? Um, I was raised pretty traditionally uh, and I was in a monogamous marriage for 20 years. Um, but I found that the more that I started to tease apart ideas about most of what culture is about education, 
the way I educated and raised my son, um, the way that I felt about religion and spirituality and all the things that we are taught to believe. Um, once I started teasing the first thing apart, when you pulled the thread, the mm -hmm, sweater, mm -hmm. the whole sweater unraveled. And I happened to be very involved with a youth development organization. And a lot of the folks that I work with in that organization are non-monogamous and have been for many years. So watching them develop and begin and end healthy relationships uh, with multiple partners over the years and doing pieces of education with them about relationships and sexual education in our work, um, it gave me a really great foundation for looking at folks who are practicing non-monogamy in a way that was so heartful and earnest mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. uh, it created a really great foundation for me when I decided that that was something that, that was important for me in my life. And it was a more authentic way of living who I was. It made it an easy transition. I was, uh, I call it front loading. Uh, I was able to front load so much of those pieces of education for myself so that my transition to non-monogamy was, well, not without it. <laughs> uh, probably could have been a lot worse had I not had sure. those wonderful people and examples in my life. That's awesome. So one of the things that you mentioned is you're teasing apart the things that you that that we have learned and you've got this this education uh, that you're leaning on. Can you tell me some of the things that you started with? Like, what was the first thread that you pulled? Uh, well, societally, the first thread that I pulled was my own religious journey and spirituality. And when I started to pull apart the things that I had learned and wonder if those were actually what are those my beliefs that I have formed mm. myself? Are those just things that were taught to me and I decided that that's what yeah. I needed to, to have? Totally get once that. I, yeah, yeah. And so once I started pulling that apart, um, I had my son is now almost 17. Um, and the way that he was parented and the way that I was parented, I started to question all of those things and whether that was right and best for him. And I think that when you start pulling away big pieces of culture, and the way we're programmed when we're growing up, uh, the other big pieces of culture naturally come. Uh, it just so happens that non-monogamy was uh, one of the last big pieces of culture that I pulled apart. Um, education, I pulled apart really, uh, really a lot. My background is in education. I've taught mm -hmm. adults. And um, I think that the way that people learn is really important. And so in pulling that apart in the way that my son learned, I decided to keep him home and we did unschooling with him, which was, is largely child. Yeah. He is largely child led. So he got to decide what he learned about and what interested him, which oh. was a great motivator and created a, a safe place where he could take his own interests and utilize that to educate himself. Uh, he is now transitioned to public school as a freshman in high school. He started going and he has done really, really well and is crazy self-directed and is very mature most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's been beneficial to me to walk through those journeys and pick apart some larger, larger cultural things. Mm -hmm. um, and I, it all kind of led me to this piece of the way that I do relationships and not just intimacy or sexual connections with people, but the way that I do all of my relationships with people, my relationship with my son, my relationship with my friends and my clients, my relationship with you now <laughs> and how, what that looks like and how I can do that in a way that is really honest and kind. Um, and 
for me, that's what transitioning to non-monogamy has created for me as an opportunity to do that. Try to make the world a better place. Absolutely. We're always trying to make the world a better place, or at least, you know, at a minimum, our world. Absolutely. When, when I think of my own polyamorous journey, I, I think about what you're saying right now, where I'm able to create closer relationships with people because there's no, there's no limit, right? There's no cap per se, uh, where, you know, in, in, when I was monogamous, I could have a friendship with the girl, but then, you know, there was always that, you know, potential jealousy with my partner or, you know, whatever, all these different things. And for sure, even if I thought that the other girl was attractive or, you know, I was really into her, whatever, like that's a hard line that we're just not going to cross. Um, But now in polyamory, I can cross that line, you know, as long as I'm being honest and forthcoming with everybody involved with you. One of the things that you're talking about is relationship anarchy, right? You're, you know, you're, you're kind of leaning towards that, uh, towards that identification. Can you tell me what that means to you and, you know, why, why you feel that that applies to you? I feel like in all of that front loading and the people that I happen to have in my life as friends, um, relationship anarchy probably appealed the most to me and spoke to me the most because it allows us to deconstruct hierarchy. Um, and I, I, whether people practice hierarchy, hierarchical polyamory, I don't really care. I don't have mm-hmm. a skin in that game. Um, but for me, it is knowing that there's no prescriptive way that my relationship is going to progress with a person. And it also says that I am allowed to value my relationships in a way that doesn't put a sexual connection above a platonic connection Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or it doesn't, it doesn't require me to walk in a world where obligation and norms determine the way that I relate with people that I can, I can define those terms with that other person and with their consent each and every time we interact with each other. And every time Every time I have a new interaction with a new person, I get to define what that looks like. I love that. I love that. It makes a lot of sense. Does Do you find that it um, interferes with other commitments that you may have? I mean, you were you mentioned that you were married for 20 years. Uh, you have a son who's uh, almost 17 years old. Does practicing relationship anarchy, did it affect your marriage did it has it affected your uh, relationship with your son how has it affected uh the relationships that you had prior to finding out about you know consensual non-monogamy and relationship anarchy um i think that in the long run it's enhanced those prior to kind of relationships my relationship with my son's father uh is really great uh we are we really care deeply for one another and co-parent in a great way Mm -hmm. And I think that prioritizing um, when he needs me to be giving in a way that is kind, uh, I don't think I would have been able to do that if I hadn't had the experiences that I've had with partners yeah. who kind of lean towards relationship anarchy. Being able to to step back and and realize that I'm going to default upon the uh, upon the side of kindness when I'm dealing with anything with him, especially 
when it becomes, uh, when things are difficult, because it's not easy to co-parent with someone mm -hmm. that you're no longer with. And so yeah. being able to have that step back and that uh, this is coming from a place of compassion uh, allows that. Um, it's really helped me with my son in order to teach him consent in his relationships with other people, not mm -hmm. just sexual context, but in consent as far as how much you want to have to do with someone and what kind of interactions you want to have with them and being able to withdraw that and having conversations about that with him has become so much easier uh, and giving him permission to be autonomous and to like fully go into being this young person out into the world with hopefully way more knowledge than you and I had <laughs> when we were his age. Well, I sure hope so. It is the information age after all. And, you know, <laughs> they're carrying around the world's knowledge in their pocket, right? We all are these days. Sure. Um, I find it interesting that for the second day in a row, uh, our guests have talked about approaching each relationship from a place of kindness. I, I don't know if that's necessarily a polyamorous thing or if that's just kind of a hey this is what nice people do kind of thing uh i just it, it, it's funny that uh both you and ironically uh our guest yesterday was also a heather um <laughs> so <laughs> you know it's a twofer it's a twofer um but with with relationship anarchy i think it's it, i just think it's really cool i think it's it, it does like you said it removes that hierarchy um what is what is dating like as a relationship anarchist um what do you do you find do you have multiple partners is it more of a struggle do you think i don't know if you have anything to compare it to um but but what's it like that is it's it's funny the word that you chose dating because that's i, I like i loathe that word i have a oh, I, oh, so sorry. I get caught up in <laughs> oh hell no Right? <laughs> I get caught up in semantics. It is totally ridiculous how I am so pedantic at times. I can't even stand myself. Um, I don't like dating. It's infantile. Okay, let's, it's, let's, let's remove no, that word. We can, we can remove it. it okay, we can use Scratch your Scratch it from the record. I don't... <laughs> I don't, I'm not being critical. It's just so funny. It's actually a joke amongst my friends. Like I, I will eat figs, but I will not eat dates. Nice. Um, no, I, uh, bravo, bravo. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I have two, uh, I, I call the people that are closest to me in my life, dear ones, because mm -hmm. that allows me to express fully what they are to me. They are very dear to me. Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't exclude other folks. It just allows me to put those people in a category that says these people are dear to me. And I have lots of those folks and those relationships have all different kinds of parameters. Um, but for sake of being less obtuse and semantic, um, I would say that I have two people that most, what most poly A people would call partners. Um, one person that I got involved with shortly after my marriage ended is someone that I've known for many years. Um, and he used to be widely identified as relationship anarchy. I think he stays away from that label anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but he is a, a lovely human who I very much enjoy spending time with. And he is someone who I can count on for being 100% authentic with me at all times. And because people are people, that is not always awesome. 
<laughs> right? Because sometimes yeah. honesty is not what we want to hear and it hurts. Yeah. Um, yeah. I get that. But I've grown a lot through that relationship and having that close connection with that, with that human. And uh, he is quite special to me in many, many ways. Uh, the virus has made it difficult to spend time together um, because, yeah, so do I. Yeah. Yeah. So for sure, for sure. But um, so that's been difficult, but uh, I have another partner who I met the November before COVID started and uh, he is amazing and wonderful. And we do use the word partner. So I'm going to go ahead and use that here, not just for clarity's sake, but because that's our chosen negotiated word to identify one another. Mm -hmm. Um, He just happens to live 2,346 miles away. Ouch. Um, <laughs> which also sucks with COVID. Yeah. <gasps> with or without COVID, that one's going to suck. Right. Uh, he is amazing and somewhat magical in that he has traveled across the country multiple times by car uh, in a couple of days time, <laughs> very rarely stopping during the pandemic to come and stay with me for uh, weeks at a time, which has been super great uh, to have that time to bond and cement our relationship and our connection and define what that means to us. So that's what my piece looks like. Mm-hmm. And as far as the relationship anarchy part of that and what that looks like for me is that um, both of these people know that all of this is negotiable all the time. And I am always going to come from a place of compassion and kindness and authenticity and honesty um, so that we can both realize what we would like to have negotiated out of these connections. What would you say if anybody, you know, relationship anarchist or, or somebody who kind of, um, I've, I've seen it defined as, you know, you're, you're dating yourself or you're putting yourself first what would you say to someone who said, well, you're selfish for doing that? I agree. I am. I don't think selfishness (laughs) selfishness (laughs) is inherently bad. Um, My whole life, my profession, my journey as a mother and as a friend is built around uplifting the happiness and healing of other people. Um, So when people call me selfish, it kind of rolls off because sure I am. We all are. Mm-hmm. I am my own primary partner. Uh, you know, that whole trope that everyone likes to say, so po people like to say. And I, I am because if I'm not good at being me, I'm not going to be good at being a partner to you yeah. or being a friend to you or being a parent to you. So if I can continue to make myself a better human, um, like hopefully I can continue to be a better encounter with you, a better connection with you. I hope. Oh, you're right. And when you're right, you're right. And you, you're always right. Always right. (laughs) No, I, I, you know, I wanted to throw that out there because I feel like that's definitely something that uh, is, it gets thrown around and it can throw some people off. It can, one of uh, a future guest uh, called me today because she wanted to kind of talk about the show and, and some of the things that uh, we're going to be that we're going to be talking about. One of them is is shame, right? And so there's there's this stigma, I guess, of being selfish, where like I'm supposed to be ashamed of it, but you don't you don't seem to be carrying that. Oh no, <laughs> I, I'm I'm not ashamed at all. Um, I don't I don't feel 
I don't feel ashamed of my selfishness. I don't feel ashamed of um, my choosing to have multiple partners. I don't feel ashamed when I make choices that are for my own good that may not be what someone else wants. Uh, and, and that's not an easy battle, especially as a woman mm-hmm. and a mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a female identifying person in our culture, being selfish and doing things for themselves is like, whoa, but then you add in the mom piece of it uh, and that makes it even worse. So I don't, I don't feel shame about that. I think I feel I'm proud of myself for taking mm-hmm. care of who I am because that's what I want other people to do. And if I yeah. don't do it myself, how the hell are they going to know how to do it? You know, how is my son going to walk out into the world and have boundaries and take care of who he is and have his own growth be important to himself if no one ever shows him that that's a thing that they can do? Ain't no thing like me, said me. You are so <laughs> right. So I absolutely love right. I, I, I love him too. He's my favorite. Well, He's one of my favorites. Okay. I just love the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe. I've, right. I've watched the last episode of WandaVision four times already. Oh my gosh. I, I, it's a I sickness. haven't even started that one yet. Uh, so. uh, anyway, we won't get into that. <laughs> um, I did want to ask though, you know, kind of, kind of on that, on that same thread, you know, did your marriage and forgive me if this is too personal, but that's why we're here. Did your marriage end because you wanted to explore polyamory? And if so, how did you, how did you overcome that? Um, gosh, the answer is maybe, um, I think that that was a driver, but it certainly wasn't a primary driver, probably not Mm. even in the top five for me as to why. Okay. Our, our, our relationship changed to the form that it is now. Um, sometimes it's just time for relationships to end or change the way that they look. And different pieces of your relationships with people change over time. Your sexual connection with a partner changes over mm-hmm. time. Your, like, how close you are and platonic. I mean, like, no one has the same relationship over a 20-year span. It it ebbs and it flows and it mm-hmm, changes mm-hmm. and you find things that are valuable in other people too. So yeah, sure. It was part of it, but not, not, not even really the top five. No, not really. And I know that's not the case for a lot of people uh, who end marriages and end up in non-monogamous uh, configurations later, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. that was, that was really not the case for me. Um, uh, I am quite certain and that my uh, son's father is, very much can't wrap his head around non-monogamy knowing mm-hmm. the same people that I do. He, he doesn't get it. Um, and I don't know that he really wants to, and that's okay too. For um, sure. For sure. Yeah. Is there, is there anything like, um, was, was there a time, you know, after your marriage did end and you, and maybe then when you started exploring uh, consensual non-monogamy that there was difficulty that there was a, like, you struggling to kind of come to terms with it and accept that as part of your identity. Roads? Well, we're going, we don't need roads. Um, I think not as part of my identity. I don't, I know that a lot of folks think that, uh, and, and, and truly believe that their identity as a non-monogamous person is like just part of who they are and the way they were born. Uh, that's just not my view for myself. 
I think that I came to it as a result of rational thought and meeting a bunch of wonderful people who were doing that thing that made a whole lot of sense to me as someone with a background in biology and knowing human behavior. And I was like, that makes a whole lot more sense and seems like a much hmm. more rational and kind way to live amongst each other. Um, so I don't see it as an identity for me. I see it as just one of the ways that I live my life. Right. Um, so I don't know that I struggled with it necessarily because I didn't feel like it was like a big giant identity thing. Uh, a lot of my family doesn't know about my personal life. Uh, most of my clients don't. If they mm -hmm. do, that's fine. I don't have any shame surrounding it. There's, I'm not doing anything wrong. The consensual and consensual non-monogamy <laughs> is very much there in my life. Yeah, and, yeah. and the closest people to me know that what my life looks like and how I'm super, super lucky and have some really great relationships with some wonderful people. Nice. That's awesome. I, you know, I, I know that it is to some people um, less of a, choice and more of uh like this is the way that i'm wired uh i'm kind of with you i think it's it's more of something that i've developed over time something that i learned about and decided to adopt because it just made more sense to me uh you mentioned biology uh that you you are you, you have a degree you have a, a an education in biology or just like a passion for it and what did you see there like the, i i know that you mentioned in in your in your bio neuroscience so uh and and the camp that you were talking about it's very much based in in science as well so how did science play into your decision to follow a consensual non-monogamous path um, I think that, and yeah, I do have uh, an, an academic background in biology, even though that's not my work now. Um, well, it kind of comes into my work as far as neuroscience goes. I am a massage therapist and I work mostly with chronic pain folks. So a lot of my reading and learning about the science of um, the human animal has, is centered around neuroscience and pain and that kind of work that I do there. Gotcha, um, gotcha. But my interest in that, as far as it relates to non-monogamy, was uh, reading Sex at Dawn. And I know that's probably a bit of a trope for a lot of folks in the polyA world. But um, the book Sex at Dawn, and I know there are lots of criticisms. Uh, I've read them. I'm not familiar books. with it, so... Oh, I highly recommend it. If you'd like me to send you a copy, I'm happy to do so. <laughs> we'll talk after. <laughs> okay. okay. It's, um, it's based upon the observable science of non-monogamous behavior in animals, essentially, uh, mm -hmm. and matriarchal cultures of humans. But and, and some of the science is criticized, and rightly so. But it resonates when you look at creatures who live in non-monogamous ways and how that actually works really, really well for most types of animals who mm -hmm. are absent the things that we have in our culture that say that that's bad. Uh, the puritanical culture that we live in here in the United States, mm -hmm. right? That root in puritanism and the religious roots as far as um, the shame around sex. Uh, all that is addressed in this book in a way that says, here are some basic principles we've learned from watching bonobos and matriarchal cultures that are not sexually monogamous and what that looks like. Because I know a lot of people think that uh, sexuality is what non-monogamy is 
about. Yeah. For for most of us, it's not. But it did give me a basis to see it from a biological perspective that, oh, there's validity in this. There's validity in going at this from a really rational standpoint. And it allowed me to kind of look at that and parse out the pieces of me that said, oh, I couldn't possibly do that. That's wrong. Well, why is it wrong? It's wrong because we've adopted all these cultural mm-hmm. things. But when we look mm-hmm. at the science of it, we look at these this in, these incredibly prosperous and well-rounded communities of different types of animals who are doing this living non-consent or living in consensual monogamous non-monogamous makeup sexually specifically um for hundreds and thousands of years and we've watched this behavior in certain animals it's so cool to think about that like why are we the only ones who are like "Mm, (laughs) only one more person you can only have sex with that one person for the rest like why did we decide to do that somewhere down the line we decided it but it wasn't always there i mean you can look back at you know ancient greek cultures and you know all these different things where you know, even homosexuality was completely normal and 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 accepted. And it wasn't until you know, I don't know, medieval times or something, where where the 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 hardcore of the hardcore and like you know all of these things really really started to to be, I don't know, ostracized or or whatever. Like we really started uh, to consider those things wrong. It's not until recently, like the last what sixty years, that you know starting with with stuff like the stonewall riots right where uh you know fighting for did i say that right i hope i said that right um fighting for lgbt rights and all these things you know like thousands of years ago that was okay there was nothing wrong with any of it it's just we adopted it for some reason and i I, i'm i'm with you i find that totally interesting um that we are the only creatures that you know, have decided, well, not the only ones. Um, I think penguins mate for life, right? I remember that from Happy Feet. <laughs> <laughs> Just smile and wave, boys. Smile and wave. <laughs> there you go. There's a, there's a marine biologist in the next room, and I can confirm or deny that for you if you'd like me to, but I, I can't confirm that one with absolute certainty. Yeah, well... You know, so so we we may or may, we're we're among the only animals that uh, really hold to it, uh, and it is, you know, fairly recent. It's not it's not like it's embedded in us from the beginning of evolution. This is just a, a something that society has has adopted for us. Heather, I want to give you an opportunity. Uh, I know that you're very passionate about Camp Quest, uh, so would you like to uh, talk a little bit about it and what uh, what they're doing for the community? Um, camp Quest was started about 26 years ago and is a residential camp started actually here in Ohio where I am um, and it's for kids whose parents are secular um, or who want to have a secular camp experience for their kids. That was how it was born. It is really based upon the foundations of humanist principles of kindness and for the good of others and for the good of the planet that we live on and all creatures um, and it's very heavily philosophy based and we make s'mores. Um, <laughs> we we have really strong science programs and we have dances. Um, we do campfires and we have world religion classes. Uh, we do very robust 
sex education for our older campers and consent education for our younger campers. And it is a wonderful community of accepting people. Um, we very much honor our LGBTQIA plus folks and they are welcome in our home. And we create a space that is not only inclusive, but is created with them in mind. And that's something that we're very, very proud of. Um, it is a wonderful thing to have as a passion project. And I'm so glad they keep letting me come back year after year. <laughs> <laughs> and I will do it as long as they allow me to, because those kids are amazing. And I learn more than uh, I could possibly ever teach them. And if somebody wanted to uh, send their kids, where could they go? Um, campquest.org is our national website, and that will take you to the camp that is closest to you. We have camps all over the West Coast and in the South, the Eastern Seaborn here in the Midwest. Um, and we will find you a camp that is close enough to you. Don't know what camps are going to look like during COVID this year, but I'm sure by 2022, we'll be back to robust, lots of overnight camps. And it's a wonderful thing. We also have camperships for families who find the camp cost to be cost prohibitive. Um, and it, we try to be as welcoming and inclusive as we possibly can to folks. And we have lots of money and open arms available for kids who want a camp experience, who want to have that leadership training and just really have a great time in the summer. Fantastic. Heather, Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for all of your insight, for letting me ask some probing questions, uh, for being a good sport and, you know, just taking it all with a grain of salt and letting it roll off. I, I really appreciate uh, your input and, and, and your, uh, your knowledge. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate what you're doing. <laughs> thank you. All right, everybody else. Thank you all. As always, thank you to our live audience for tuning in. Uh, as a reminder, when we're live, you don't get commercial interruptions, but the same cannot be said for the podcast downloads. If you want to continue to avoid commercial interruptions, be sure to catch us live Monday through Wednesday. Uh, so that means go to YouTube and subscribe, hit that little bell button so that you can get the notifications when we're up on live or sign up for our Patreon, where you'll not only get access to commercial free RSS feeds, but also Patreon-only content like reaction videos and Q&A with our upcoming professional guests. So thank you all again for hanging out with me, uh, for hanging out with us, for taking the time to uh, learn a little bit from our incredible guests. Thank you again, Heather, so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. All right, everybody. You all have, have a nice day. Thank you for tuning in to the Practicing Polyamory podcast. Would you or someone in your polycule like to be a guest? Sign up at practicingpolyamory.com and join the conversation. Please support us by subscribing, liking, and following us on social media at Practicing Polya by clicking any of the affiliate links on our website or by subscribing at patreon.com slash